We are in a series in the book of John. Over the next two weeks, we're going to be wrapping up John chapter 1. And uh, this is a passage I'm really excited about. Uh, but just to re- remind you or, or kind of connect you with where we're at, the, the first chapter of John, what the author John does is he paints us this incredible picture of who Jesus is. And so the point of his gospel, he's going to tell us at the end, is so that you might believe in him and through believing in him who is Jesus, you would have life. You would find eternal life. You would find abundant life in him. And so that's the whole point. And so what he's doing throughout this first chapter is he's setting up this incredible um, picture of who Jesus is. And so we see that he is the word. In the beginning was the word of the logos. The, the, the truth, the, the thing that holds everything together, but not just a thing. He is a person. This is our God. This is our creator. And so we see that he's light. We see that he's life. We have the witness that we looked at over the last two weeks from another John, John the Baptist, as he comes and he points to Messiah and as the Holy Spirit reveals him and he says, hey, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There he is. This is what I'm here. I'm a voice proclaiming Jesus, that Jesus is the author of life. He's the giver of life. He's light in the darkness. We have all these incredible pictures in John chapter 1 of who he is. And then throughout the rest of the book, he's going to go about, he's shocking us right on chapter 1, and the rest of the book is all about, hey, now let me show you why all that is true. Let me show you how that all works itself out. And so as we get to uh, the passage here this morning, let me just ask you, have you ever had a moment in life, or maybe you've had one recently, where everything fundamentally was altered just in a moment? Sometimes you know it, sometimes you don't, right? For some, maybe it was like, she said yes, and you just have this sense like everything is fundamentally different and shifted in your life. For some, maybe younger in the room, uh, you graduated just a short time ago, and there was something that fundamentally shifted in that moment, right? And now you're like, I'm not so sure about this adulting thing, because things fundamentally shifted in your life. Others, like um, especially guys in the room, you had no clue how things fundamentally shifted in your life. Um, like when, when she came in and said, hey, we're going to have a baby. And you're like, woo, right? And you had no idea how your life just changed. I, I always tease people. Um, <laughs> I always tease people because getting married is a, is a big life transition, right? But having kids, that's a whole nother level, isn't it? If you've, you've had kids, um, that shifts everything. And so sometimes, you know, it's things that we would consider like these, these positive, well, they are, right, these, these beautiful moments in life that fundamentally shift the course of our life. Other times, it's, it's things, you know, an accident or a tragedy. And we just know, like, in that moment, things have fundamentally changed. Things have fundamentally shifted. It's going to be different from this point. Perhaps it's a phone call from the doctor and a diagnosis, that's going to fundamentally alter the next year, a few years of life. For our faith, finding Jesus, meeting Jesus, trusting Jesus, following Jesus, is meant to fundamentally alter our life in every way. And the issue for us, and this is what we're going to see here today, is that for many, that's not where they're at. 
For many, it hasn't shifted anything really fundamentally. And so over the next two weeks, we're really going to dig into the very end of this chapter one, and we're going to look at the concept, and um, we're going to look at discipleship, and really the heart of discipleship, and we're going to see it illustrated in an amazing way. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter one, and we're going to dive in and pick up in verse 35. It's going to say the next day, so the previous day, uh, we know in this, as John switches from, you know, the first 18 verses, which was this awesome theological introduction uh, to Jesus, the prologue, into now the narrative of the witness of Jesus. And the last day we saw John, actually the Baptist, point towards Jesus and say, look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world this phrase that anyone in the, in the Jewish culture would be very um, familiar with, the lamb, the lamb of God, the sacrificial lamb, the Passover lamb, this thing that they would do on a cons- consistent, continual basis to have their sins covered over for a temporary period of time. And John applies it in a way that's very odd to them as he points to Jesus and says, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He tells us that Jesus is the one who will baptize us in the Holy Spirit, that there'll be a fundamental transformation because of Jesus. And so now the next day, it says John the Baptist, John the Baptist was there again with two of his disciples. And when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. So again, I love it because John is so excited about Jesus. It's behold, like, look, the Lamb of God. This is the whole point of why he's here, to point towards the Messiah, to prepare the way for the Messiah. And he points and he goes, he's here. Behold, look, the Lamb of God. And it says, when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. And so I love this picture right here that you have right from the very beginning because you've got these two disciples, and they're, they're, they're with John, um, and we'll find out, I think, who they are here in just a little bit. But these two disciples that are there with John, they've been learning from John and being mentored by John, and now John points to Jesus, and they're like, peace out, man. They, like, just take off, and they start following Jesus. And you know what? We'll, we'll see a couple chapters later. John is okay with that. Because he understands what he's here for, and that's to point the way towards Jesus. And so he says, I must, he must increase, I must decrease. You see this incredible picture of humility. And so two of his guys peel off, and they're following Jesus. And I just get this picture like Jesus is, you know, look, the Lamb of God. And, and they have a split-second decision to make. Are we going to, like, this, this changes everything in this moment. There's nothing more important in this moment. And I think what I love about this is that this is a startling truth they're confronted with. Look, the Lamb of God. This is, this is the Messiah. As, as John points out Jesus, they, they're confronted with a startling truth, and they have to decide what to do with it. They have to let it decide. Are they going to let it affect them? Is it going to change their direction? And I love it because they do. They just decide. And they take off, and they begin following Jesus. They follow behind him. It fundamentally, they understood that this was a moment where they had to make a decision, and they had no idea how this decision would go on to fundamentally alter the course of their lives. 
that they would basically go on about a three-year camping trip with Jesus over the next three years and follow him around and witness things that they couldn't believe, and it would transform their lives, and they would go on to be his witnesses and go on to die martyrs' deaths for him. And in the process of being the original apostles of Jesus, they would go on. This would fundamentally change the course of their life. Um, and we're even told in the book of Revelation that their names will be on the foundation stones in the New Jerusalem. That's pretty cool. They didn't know any of that at the moment, though. All they knew is we have, to, we have a decision to make. Are we going to let this change us? Are we going to be interruptible by God in order to follow him? And I think that brings up a really good question in our lives and in our society. And that is, are we interruptible by God? See, I think for so many of us, we are so either distracted, we are so programmed, we have so much going on that the honest truth is for most of us, there's just no room and when we're confronted, when the Holy Spirit um, whispers in our ear or speaks to us in his still small voice and says, hey, I want you to lean into this moment or I want you to pursue this, it's so easy just to push it aside, to push that, that leading of God, that prompting of God. Maybe it's to pray for someone or pick up the phone and, and call someone or walk down the hall and talk to a coworker. Or maybe it's a bigger, you know, what we would see as a bigger directional thing. And we keep pushing it aside. Because we're just so busy. We're so distracted. It's so easy just to ignore that. And what I love about these two disciples is they pay attention. They recognize the moment for what it is. And they're willing to shift the course of where they are in order to follow Jesus. Verse 38, in turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? I love this because you get this picture, you know, as Jesus walks by and John points, and then they're like, we're out of here. We're following him. And they're just kind of tagging along. He's walking down this dusty path and kind of looking over his shoulder at these two dudes, right? And they're kind of like have this look and expression on their face as they're, as they're coming after and following after him. And Jesus stops and turns around and goes, what do you want? Literally like, what are you seeking? What do you want from me? What are you looking for? What do you want out of this? There's so much encompassed in that statement. And I think for everyone here, you're, you're here in church, and so you, uh, in a sense, are seeking Jesus. And it's a good question to ask, what do I want? Because for so many, it's just like, well, I, I just, you know, I feel like I need to, this is a good spiritual connection point, and I want my kids to grow up with good morals, and those are, those are good things, um, but they're not the point of what Jesus wants to get at with you. Or if this, this is a good tradition, this holds our family together. I grew up doing this, it means a lot to me. Those are all good things. Maybe for some, it's like, I just need Jesus. I'm, my marriage is falling apart, and what I want is for Jesus to, to, to heal it. Um, I've got a sickness, and I, just, I need Jesus to heal it. We come to Jesus with all sorts of things we want. 
a lot of times we don't even really think through. And I'm sure if you'd like paused and looked through what's running through these guys' minds as Jesus asked them this, and, and I love their answer in just a second, but as Jesus asked them this, I'm sure, sure it's like, what do you want? And, and everything running through their mind, it's like, we want to know, like John said, you're the Messiah. Are you really the Messiah? And you can just see their mind spinning, you know, uh, 100 miles an hour. Like, are you really the Messiah? When are you going to come? Are you going to set up your kingdom? Um, can we follow you? Can we be part of your posse? We just, you know, like we want to be part of this whole thing. And that meant a lot in their, in their hearts and their minds. And there's all this excitement. And then Jesus turns around. It's kind of like when the teacher calls on you in class for the answer. Um, here's the answer they came up with. They said, Rabbi, which means teacher. Rabbi, where, uh, where are you staying? <laughs> and I think this is actually so cool um, because, number one, it, it kind of, like, describes how I feel a lot of times when I don't really know the answer. But then, in a sense, I think it reveals so much about where their hearts were at. Because ultimately, in the midst of all the other things swirling around in their minds, the most important thing is, hey, where are you going? Because we want to go with you. Like they're expressing in their own awkward way a heart of, we just want to be where you are. Like, we want you. We want to know you. And I think it's a powerful thing that they say. And they start out by saying this word, rabbi. It's very respectful. They're respectful of him. A rabbi was honored in the culture. And see, to understand like rabbis and disciples, and as they're following him, and no doubt wanting to be part of this movement, what he's all about, they've been following John. They've been John's disciples. And now um, they realize like this is like the center of where God's working is over here now. And so we, we're going to just peel off. We're going to go over here. And this understanding, like what they, were, what they were seeking here in this moment, it's this relationship of rabbi or teacher or master to ment- mentee, right? Mentor to mentee kind of. It's an age-old concept, master and student. You see it reflected in all sorts of our favorite movies, right? You've got um, well, Lord of the Rings, right? And you've got Gandalf and his, and his disciple, essentially, Frodo, the one he's trying to pour into and help him understand the calling that is on his life and, and help support him in getting to the thing th- that he's supposed to do. You've got uh, Yoda and Luke and pouring into him, helping understand, like, you can rise to this. You can, you know, there's... There's greatness inside of you, right? We understand this. We have this concept. And in the first century, um, a rabbi and disciple was a, a, uh, a very, it was a very prestigious thing to be the disciple of a prominent rabbi. In this day and age, in the, in the culture where Jesus grew up and these, these young men grew up, um, education in the scriptures was highly valued. In fact, many of them by age 10 would have had the whole Torah memorized. That's the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, by heart. Anybody want to sign up? We'll give you a year to get there. Okay, I'll give you 10 years like they had. Anybody want to sign up? They would have had it memorized. And then out of that group then, you know, kind of the primary school, 
out of that group, the kids who really excelled would go on to another level of study. And then out of those students, the best of the best who are around age 15 at this point would apply to be a rabbi or a disciple of a rabbi. They would come to a, a rabbi and basically apply to become a disciple. And what's interesting about the guys Jesus picks out, many of them, um, they didn't go on to the second level of education. They were, you know, they were working their, their parents' trades. They were doing all kinds of things. They didn't go on to that, which is interesting. We'll talk about that more next week. But when the rabbi, when somebody would apply to a rabbi to be a disciple, the rabbi would select them based on um, not the fact that they could learn, you know, a course of study, pass the test, get the degree. It was he thought they could be like him. That they could, they could become like who he was. In fact, I found a quote that I thought was really Interesting, this isn't on the screen, but it says this, the idea of discipleship can be summed up with one biblical key word, imitation. To be a disciple meant you were following a rabbi, a teacher, but the goal of a disciple wasn't merely to master the rabbi's teachings. Instead, it was to master his way of life, how he prayed, studied, taught, served the poor, and lived out his relationship with God day to day. The goal is to, to be transformed. The goal is to be like the rabbi. In fact, Jesus said, um, he said in Luke that when a disciple is fully trained, he becomes like his master. And there's this, uh, there's this saying um, that we, we found in rabbinic liter literature to be covered by the dust of your rabbi. And the, and the concept behind this is that, you know, they'd walk around on these hot, dusty little roads and they would literally follow so closely that the rabbi who was leading the way would kick up dust and, and they'd get covered with the dust of their rabbi because they would follow him so closely. In fact, if you want to watch a really cool video on this, um, go to YouTube and just search Dust of the Rabbi, Ray. Remember the name Ray. It's Ray Vanderland if you look it up, but you won't remember that. So just Dust of the Rabbi, Ray. And there's a cool little 28-minute video where this uh, amazing teacher walks around in, in the, uh, uh, the Holy Land in, in, on the places where Jesus walked, right, and uh, talks about this. It's really cool. So you can look that up. The point is that, that when you talk about discipleship and talk about a, a rabbi, the truth is being a disciple should fundamentally alter everything. That's the heart of it. Dallas Willard was a philosopher and author, a, a, Bible, a seminary Bible college professor. And he wrote in one of his books, The Great Omission, here's, here's what he wrote about discipleship. He said, the word disciple occurs 269 times in the New Testament. Christian is found only three times, and that was first introduced to refer precisely to the disciples. The New Testament is a book about disciples, by disciples, and for disciples of Jesus Christ. The disciple of Jesus is not the deluxe or heavy-duty model of the Christian, especially padded 
textured, streamlined, and empowered for the fast lane on the straight and narrow way. He stands on the pages of the New Testament as the first level of basic transportation in the kingdom of God. I think that's so profound. Because I think for so many people, we just kind of think of like, well, yeah, I, I believe in Jesus, but I'm not really, I wouldn't call myself a disciple. And if that's you, there's a problem. Anybody rented a car, you got an upgrade? You're like, yeah, I used to like always reserve the economy car, good gas mileage, cheap, right? And then every once in a while you go in and they bump you up to the, to the really nice car and you drive it around for a week with all the, you know, the bells and whistles and the heated seats and all that kind of stuff. And then you have to go back to your own junky car later. And you're like, ah. Oh. But see, we have this way of thinking like discipleship is somehow, you know, the upgraded level. That's like what the real serious people do, but that's not me. And the point Dallas Willard is making here is actually the call to follow Jesus, the call to belief in him leads to following him, which is being a disciple. Being a follower of his. Not just some sort of souped up, like value added sort of plus addition. It's meant to, see, see the, the one who followed a rabbi, he was not just, you know, going to learn the truths from him, you know, come and, and listen and learn and get a degree, but he was going to come and learn to think the way that he thought and act the way that he acted and live the way that he lived. Jesus looks at his disciples, he says, greater things than this will you do, which I'm sure blew their mind. But that's the heart, that's the heart of discipleship. It's following. It's, it's fundamentally altering. It's changing. And I think this is such a, a powerful thing. Dallas Willard, in one of his other books, The, the Vine Conspiracy, says this, authentic discipleship transforms all aspects of life, every day, at work, at home, in all relationships. And I think we missed this. And our culture has this way of thinking about faith that's just sort of an a add-on to our lives. This is how our culture looks at faith. Like, you know, you can, you can be what, what, whatever you are. You know, I'm a, I'm a scientist or I'm a, uh, you know, a doctor. I'm a teacher. And this is who I am. I'm an American, and this is my identity. And then my faith is just sort of an add-on, which is my own personal private little thing, but it really doesn't fundamentally alter the way I live. And you think of our culture, that's the way that faith is communicated. It's not communicated about them as the most essential thing in your life, the most fundamental thing in your life. It's kind of like just an addition to your life. And Jesus said, that's not the heart. That's not the concept of being a disciple. And these guys, as they address Jesus, they say, Rabbi, Rabbi. And then they say, we just want, we, we want to be with you. Where are you staying? And then Jesus responds to him like this. And I love this. He looks at him. And he says, come. I think he's got a grin on his face. Because he knows what's coming for these guys. They got no clue. But he knows the role they're going to play. He looks at him and he says, come. And you will see. 
Come and you will see. See, come and see is an invitation to relationship. It's where the journey begins. Are you going to come and see? It's an invitation. It's a little bit mysterious, isn't it? Where are we going? Come and see. One of my favorite memories uh, in uh, my wife and in, in our marriage, uh, we've been married 16 years now, and one of my favorite memories as I think back was this one cool adventure we had um, actually on our honeymoon. We were in Hawaii, and we took off. Like, we didn't have toothbrushes with us. We, we were going to go check out this volcano, so we had a couple of flashlights and some water bottles, um, but we had basically nothing else. And in the course of this, we, we drove down to this um, volcano on the Big Island, and it's this awesome place, and discovered that if we were going to go try to see lava, it would be a late night. And so last minute, we got this cool, like, cool little, called it the fern cottage, um, or the dragonfly cottage. It's in the middle of this fern forest, like last minute thing. This, this was like the last thing available, and they drove us out, and it was like so mysterious. If you've been there, you know what I mean. Uh, it's like you're in Jurassic Park. It's just the coolest spot. And then we took off. We drove down this eerie road for 45 minutes through what looked like a moonscape to get down um, by the ocean. And then we hiked for hours out on this jagged lava out towards this mysterious thing, hoping to get to see some lava. And I remember as, he, as we kept hiking, I mean, it took us forever. Our flashlights are dying. It's like you're walking on broken glass, um, crunching under your feet. And as we came up over this ridge, it starts getting hotter and hotter. And you're like, this is creepy, right? And then um, we came up over this hill, and there in front of us is this river of molten lava. This is like the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. And I'm not kidding on that. It is. And I remember because we, we just, it was so amazing, you know, this, this whole thing was spontaneous and unplanned. But we were together. It was about relationship, right? And we were experiencing this thing together. And still, if you see my wife tease her, because after that, she was just like mind blown. And she would go, she said, we saw lava. And so I still tease her about that. And But it was unplanned. It was uh, kind of mysterious, and it was one of the coolest, like, one of the coolest days I remember. And see, when it comes to following Jesus, Jesus says, "Come and see." And there's a mystery to following Jesus. There's a mystery that's implicit in discipleship, and that is that you don't actually know where following Him is going to lead you. But if you want to be a disciple, you need to follow. You need to step out. You need to come and see. Jesus doesn't lay the details out for them. He doesn't spell it all out, give them a nice fine print like, you know, hey, we're going to have a come visit the campus weekend, you know, and take you and your parents around and show you all the details and give you the whole student agreement and all that, and we'll let you, you know, and then you can sign it and you're in. No, it's just like, come on, come on. And see, we like it spelled out. We like to know what we're getting ourselves into, don't we? And see, part of the beauty and the mystery and, and part of the reason why so many people don't follow Jesus where he's leading is because they want it spelled out. And there's something about discipleship that is a little bit mysterious. And that's part of the heart and the call of discipleship. Come and see. 
That's part of following the Holy Spirit. We have a value, biblically serious, responsive to the Holy Spirit. And part of living a life responsive to the Holy Spirit is that there's, there's a come and see. There's a, a, hey, I want you to do this. Well, that's a little uncomfortable, I know. But t- open your mouth. Share me. I want you to, to give in this way. I want you to live dangerously, not like stupid riskily, but I want you to live dangerously for my kingdom in this way. I want you to do this thing that doesn't make sense to those coworkers of you. Like, you're like why are you doing that? Because God's leading me to. I want you to get out of your comfort zone. I want you to be obedient, to follow, to submit this area of your life, to, to basically live in a way that says, anybody remember checks? I know if you're under like 20 in the room, you probably never touched one, right? 25, 30? Debit cards? It's like a debit card with no pin that you're giving out to somebody. That's a blank check, okay? But the idea is our lives are meant to be essentially like a blank check before Jesus. Say, here's my life. You write it. And see, that's so hard for us. Because we don't like following unless we know exactly where the destination is, exactly where we're going. But that's not the heart of discipleship. The heart of discipleship is, hey, Jesus, where are we going? Come and see. Okay, that's a little scary. You're right. You have no idea. But you're going to find life there. You're going to find life the way life was meant to live. You're going to find actually some meaning, eternal significance. Verse 2 second part of that verse is, So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. And it was about four in the afternoon. And this is so cool because we get this little detail in here that I think is really actually pretty significant. Um, and most scholars believe right here that we have an early reference in this gospel to the Apostle John, the author of his gospel, that he was right here. He was one of the two. He, get, he throws this, this detail. It was four in the afternoon, or it was the 10th hour, four in the afternoon. And they went and spent the day with him. And what I love about this gospel is uh, we believe it was written after the other three synoptic gospels, and it's almost like John is giving us all this firsthand information that he's like, well, you guys forgot this and left this out. And John was right there from the very, very beginning, we believe. He was one. In fact, throughout the gospel, he doesn't ever refer to himself by name. He, he's kind of coy. He refers to himself sort of, you know, like this. And there was a second mysterious guy that we don't find out who it is. And then you have, you know, the disciple that Jesus loved. And at the very end, you know, we see him as well. So I think he was there. And this changed everything for him. And I think as he's writing this, he's thinking about how this fundamentally altered everything. And Andrew, this is the other guy that was there. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two that had heard what John had said and had followed Jesus. And the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, 
We have found the Messiah. That is the Christ. The first thing he did, he was so excited. He was, he was so changed everything in that moment that the first thing he had to do was go tell his brother. And this is also something fundamental about discipleship is disciples replicate. They make other disciples. It's part of the heart of discipleship. And, and, and part of the, the hard and challenging thing of, of this is if you've grown up in church, if a lot of times if church has turned into a routine, for so many, you've kind of lost that spark, that joy of what God did in your life. Everything's become programmatic. Everything's become routine. You quit, you quit doing the come and see thing. You know exactly where you're headed. You've kind of been stiff-arming the voice of the Holy Spirit and not being very responsive. In fact, really maybe not even spending any time with him. There's just no space in life. It's just completely crowded out. And if we're real honest, one of the primary reasons that we don't replicate, we don't tell other people about Jesus is we're just really not that excited about him. And I think, honestly, that it's only him. It's like recognizing and confessing that, like, oh, man, that's me. Jesus said the, in Revelation, talking to one of the churches, he said, here's what I have against you. You've lost your first love. And I think there's something in there that should um, speak to our hearts. And it's not meant to be condemnation because he goes on. And in one of the letters to, to the churches, he's like, hey, but the invitation is this. I'm, it's like I'm at the door knocking and I want to come in and eat. I have a relationship with you. But you got to make some time. you got to pause. you gotta, you got to be willing to alter the course of where you're walking to actually give some space for relationship with him. To confess where you're at, like I am actually, that's me. I'm not that excited anymore about you, Jesus. Which is probably why it's been a long time since I've told anybody about you. Would you restore in me the joy of my salvation? Would you work in my heart? Would you renew what you need to renew in me? So the first thing Andrew did, he found his brother Simon. He said, we have found the Messiah. We have found a certainty. He didn't have any doubt or question in his mind. You know, the truth is we follow Jesus. We do the come and see thing. We follow him. We, we say, Lord, my life is a blank check. Lord, my, you know, my, whether it's, this fundamentally alters everything for me. This relationship with you, the way I relate to my finances, the way I relate, you know, time, my treasure, my talents, what you've given me, the way I relate to in my relationships, the way I handle my morality, my sexuality, all of these things, submitting to you and bringing into obedience to you. Disciples obey. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll do what I command. And all of that is because of who he is. See, they didn't follow him just because um, he was a good rabbi. They followed him. And they gave everything for him because he was Messiah. He was their Lord. He was their Savior. 
the first chapter of John, we find out all these things about Jesus. He's Messiah, the prophet, Jesus, the Lamb of God, the one who baptizes with the Spirit, the chosen Son of God, a rabbi, a teacher, Christ's anointed one, Nazarene, the Son of God, the King of Israel, the Son of Man. You know, there's no other chapter in the New Testament that provides quite so comprehensive of a list. And what John is doing, John the Apostle, as he sets this up, saying this one is worth following. This one is the one you've been searching for. This one is the one you've been longing for your whole life. And when you encounter him, it will fundamentally alter the course of your life. Verse 42, and he brought him to Jesus, Peter. And Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. This is the third John we we come to. It's a little confusing, right? It's like an Italian family in Tony's or something, right? You are Simon, son of John. And then he casts vision into his life. And we don't have time to really get into this. We're going to really see this beautiful picture with, with Simon Peter and with Nathaniel next week. But he says, you will be called Kephas, which is translated Peter. He gives him a nickname. You're going to be called The Rock, Rocky. And he looks at this guy, and he calls vision, and he doesn't call him to follow him right at this moment because he knows he's not ready yet. But he speaks vision into his life prophetically about who he would become. And then the next day, verse 43, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee and finding Philip... He said to him, follow me, follow me. And that call, follow me, is the call that has gone out now for 2,000 years to people all around this world. And it's the call that goes out to you and, and the call that goes out to me. That we would be people who follow our master, that follow the rabbi, That when he invites us, come and see, we would say, okay. That we would submit our lives to him. That we would essentially say, Jesus, my life is a a blank check. Write it where you will. And yes, that's scary. And yes, I don't know what that means necessarily. But I know that you're worth following. I know you are where life is found. Follow me. See, being a disciple should fundamentally alter everything. A disciple follows, a disciple obeys, and a disciple replicates. Jesus commissioned to us Go into all the world and make what? Disciples. Teaching them to obey all that I have commanded. And so let me just ask you, how how are you doing with your life being fundamentally altered to come and see, to follow? Is there an area of your life where you're just sort of just got it so programmed out you've not made any space for him? Yeah, You couldn't like... You haven't paused to actually listen. 
maybe if that's you this this week, like your 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 job is to start every day out and and take it, just set aside a few minutes. And yes, read your Bible. Yes, pray, but just listen too. You say, Jesus, um, I don't want to just like have a big checklist of things I'm checking off that I'm doing for you. I want to know you. I want to hear you. Is there a place you would be leading me? How can I be attentive to your Holy Spirit? Speak to me and set aside a couple minutes just to listen to him. And then obey. Maybe there's an area in your life that you know, because the Holy Spirit, every time you're quiet, the Holy Spirit keeps talking to you about one area in your life. And you're like, I just don't want to talk about it. But he wants to talk about it. And the reason you don't want to talk about it is because you're not, you're not wanting to submit to the thing he's calling you to in that area. Maybe this week, maybe right now, is that moment where you say, okay, God, I want to follow you. Maybe it's, maybe it's something that scares you, and you're like, I don't know where it's going, and he's whispering to you, come and see. Come and see. And your step is to take, have some courage and follow the thing he's calling you to do. Maybe for some of you in the room or, or joining us online, um, your thing is actually you're not sure about him yet. And so your step is to come and see just to keep investigating him, not to give up, not to get so busy and distracted in life that you put him out of your mind. But maybe the reason he has you here today or tuning in um, with us today is so that you would follow the invitation to come and see and you would discover who he is. Keep investigating. For some of you, you need to read ahead in the book of John. That's okay. You can do that. Believe me, it'll take us a while to get to the end. It'll feel fresh by the time we get there, right? But for some of you, read ahead. Read the book of John. This is one of the best places to start in the Scripture to get to know who he is. You know what? And for some of you, you've been doing that for a while, and you're, all your questions aren't answered. You know what? For some of you, it's time to take a step of faith. Because even though they knew who Jesus was, they had no idea all the things that he would call them to. They had no idea the profound Impact. They didn't put it all together until after the resurrection, what this all meant, right? And for some of you, you've been coming, you've been seeing, you've been investigating, and, and there's this thing rising up in you, but you haven't taken that step of going, okay, I'm going to follow you, Jesus. I'm going to fully put my trust in you. And today could be a day when you put a stake in the ground and you say, this is the moment, this is the day. Would you stand? If that's you in the room, I just want to give you a chance to respond right now or, or online, and, and let's just bow our heads, close our eyes. If that's you, you can pray something like this. Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you are Messiah, the Son of God, that you died and rose again for me. And I embrace what you did for me. I fully put my faith and trust in you. Forgive me. Welcome me into your family. Or because of your love, I want to live my life for you. I want to follow you wherever you would lead. Give me life, I pray. And Lord, for all my other friends here, 
or maybe who are, who are kind of living like you, you have been an accessory, an add-on to their busy life. I pray that you would shift something in their heart right now, that fundamentally they would place you in the center of their life, that following you would become what it's all about, that you would alter something within them, that this week as they begin to lean into what you would have by the power of your Holy Spirit, um, that you would begin to shift something in their hearts so they become what you have called them to be as a disciple. And they, you, they would experience the life and the joy and the meaning that you want them to experience and the fruitfulness for your kingdom, we pray. Thank you, Lord. We love you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.